We turn once again to the Psalms as we consider our, uh, continue our summer series on the Psalms as we have done for years. You'll notice we're up to Psalm 61. We're going to read from that and preach from that today. It means there's, what, 89 more Psalms. And so maybe 8.9 more years to go through these, whatever it is we get through. But I wonder, beloved, how often we read the Psalms to our prophet as well as preach from them and hear from them. It's a wonderful book of, of melody to the Lord. Spiritual biographies are they of every man, every woman, every child believing in God. These Psalms for the pilgrim on his way to heaven. Psalm 61, another one of those pilgrim psalms entitled to the chief musician on a stringed instrument, the Psalm of David. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. And then there's a selah, that rather cryptic expression, perhaps a musical notation, or perhaps a word that the scholars say leads us to pause. And so you pause now before you go on and read more. You need to think. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. Thus far we read God's word. May we truly hear this as one and great word from heaven that we need, the word of the gospel. The psalmist, as in many psalms, reminds us of the trouble that awaits the children of God if they would be God's people. Many are the troubles of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. But there's many troubles for the righteous especially. We don't know the trouble of David at this time. Uh, Some have suggested it's a time when he was outside of the land of Egypt, or land of Israel, the promised land. And hence the phrase that he cries to God from the end of the earth, the picture of being outside the land of promise. Could be. Could be that he was outside the land and longing for worship, the worship of God once again, because he mentions the tabernacle. And he's uh, convinced that he's going to abide there forever, but he's crying to God for help to, to get back into the tabernacle. We don't know. Maybe it's a time when he was being pursued by Absalom, his, his unfaithful son, and a time, therefore, of, of great grief for the psalmist and for the people of God who saw their king in such trouble. We don't know, though. And this is one of the beauties of the word of God. It says so much, but not everything we might want it to say. 
So this word doesn't tell of a particular location, lest we tend to think that's just for him and then and there, but it's not for my situation. Well, beloved, you know the word of God speaks to us at all times and in all places and situations we find ourselves in right now, today. And right now in the sovereignty of God, you're brought here, and I am too, to hear of this God who has a wonderful place for us in our place, a place called a rock, a place called uh, the tabernacle in which we shall abide forever. And this is so important for us to remember. Whatever situation we are in our life, there's a place and a, a lovely situation that is ours in God, and we need to cry to God that we might be brought to that place and that consciousness of the presence and favor of God. This is something as well that we have, which is the word of God, not only for ourselves, but for all of the world, beginning in our world in Comstock Park and our neighborhoods and where we work and play and shop and so on. It is a word in, in a world, a word for a world that's full of men and women who have quiet and noisy desperation. And these are indeed the times, to quote the author, that try men's souls. Yes, indeed, it is a trying time in which we live and in which the next generation will have to face many more trials compounded upon very often the solutions that men propose for trials like COVID and, and trials like a bad economy and wars and rumors of wars. We are those, in fact, who live in and among a people who have their solutions, and one of them is their safe spaces. People offer safe spaces on campus and in public buildings for those who uh, cannot be harassed and who, who seek these places to be themselves out of the ordinary and, and uh, profoundly confused, and so that if you dare to enter that safe space and it's roped off or whatever, um, you're daring to uh, commit a hate crime if you say to them, you're wrong finding your safety uh, when you're a male and being a female or when you're a female being a male. And it's, it's blasphemous to think you can find a safety in being any one of those letters that you imagine uh, LGBTQ and so on even though it's outside the will of God. We tell them that, and it's not a safe place to be, but they won't hear it. They won't hear it. Oh, beloved, this word is for the safe space of God. It's for us to fly to the safe space of God, which we know is not always so safe, but it saves and is safe for our souls. This word for us, this word to present to the world, as not only an option, but as something commanded of God. Fly to God, he says. Find your refuge in him. Is he saying that to you, saying that to me? May we find our refuge in him. I want to consider the place, about that place we want to talk about, and we'll consider in that point that end of the earth, but also another place. And then the prayer that he makes in the midst of that being at the end of the earth and in that other place. 
And then the praise, where the psalmist concludes, so I will sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. Well, it's a strange description, we might think, that the psalmist finds God at the end of the earth, or he's convinced that he could find God if he went to the end of the earth. He would cry to God, and God would lead him to himself into this rock that's higher than he is. What is the end of the earth? Well, beloved, the end of the earth in, in the Bible is really a metaphor, a figure of speech for being so far from God in his favor that you're about to fall off the planet and you're about to, to know the, the death that awaits for all who are outside of the favor, the favoring presence of God. And that's what the psalmist is wrestling with here, the end of the earth, the end of the place of favor with God, outside, and perhaps this is the situation here, outside of the land of promise. You know, the land of promise was the center of the earth in the Old Testament. Israel, that little nation still today existing, but then existing as a type of the people of God with God. God had this particular plan for the Jews, uh, and this would be that they would picture what it is that God dwells with the people, a nation, a holy nation. Well, Jerusalem, their capital city where the tabernacle was and would be the temple, was really the center of the world to this people. And they, they went up to the house of God, and they were so glad because they came to the significant place of all places, the world within the world, the nation within the nations, this place with God, this place where God was pleased to dwell with the people and to say, I love you. I'm with you. I'm near to you. You're mine. And in the sacrifices that were offered, there were these pictures of Jesus Christ and his blood being the way to God and to the holy place. And the high priests and the, and the great kings, even David, and the prophets themselves would testify of the great prophet and priest and king of our salvation, even Jesus. And this place where God would meet with the people was celebrated, I say, as the center of the world. And to be outside of that place and kept from that place and that city, not only in the worship of God, as a deer running from his enemies or as a child of God running from his enemies and, and being forced to vacate the place of places and the world of worlds and the nations of nations and be outside and harassed outside, that favored nation was to be pushed off the world, as it were. It was a picture of being under the wrath of God, this being at the end of the world. In fact, that's what sin is. And if this was written, this psalm, at the occasion of David's being fleeing from Absalom, his unfaithful son, this was, David knew, what he brought upon himself by his sin with Bathsheba, his adultery, and his murder of Uriah, her husband. And so... He's tasting something, sensing something of what it is to be at the end of the world, no matter where he is, 
outside of the favor of God, there, there's no life. There's no world to exist in, no, no God of his existence, except that God punish him, because God's holy. And this is what we remember every time we come to church, and every day we should. God is holy. Our call to worship was that God was greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. He's holy, and we're not. He's full of God and perfection, and we're far from that, and we're anti-God. This is what it is to be a son of Adam and a daughter of Adam, a part of the fallen race, and we're born that way, dead in sins, the, the New Testament says. And this is described here as being at the end of the earth. The end of the earth. Not really having a point of existence and not having... Certainly, really, any hope of something like significance, except that we significantly die. And significantly and pointedly, the Word of God tells us this is the situation and the status, the condition of depravity and the status of guilt of every sinner outside the favor of God, outside the tabernacle which the psalmist comes to celebrate I will abide in your tabernacle forever. At first, he's experiencing something of the wrath of God. Psalm 42, verse 7, speaks of this. Psalm 42, verse 7. Deep calls unto deep, but the noise of your waterfalls, all your waves and billows have gone over me. This is the deer panting with his soul for God. And... Seeing something of the flood of the wrath of God, the waves and billows of God that have gone over him, and this is what that other place, which I mentioned in the introduction where the psalmist finds himself, not only at the end of the world, and, and this a figure of being exposed to the wrath of God, but he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed. My heart, from the end of the earth, I'll cry unto you. And then he says it a different way, inspired by the Spirit, so we get it. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. So at the end of the earth, he's crying unto God, and that place is where his heart is overwhelmed. And the waves and the billows of the wrath of God himself are crushing him and crashing upon him who is, as it were, shipwrecked. And there he was, going along and swimmingly by himself, and we're in the boat, maybe, of humanity, all aboard, all aboard for this trip called the trip of your life and the thrill of being human, the thrill of being alive. Well, that ship is sunk now. That boat has crashed upon the rock of the truth of God. So the psalmist here compounds the metaphor, doesn't mix them, compounds them, so that we can get a picture of the natural state from which one must cry to God and live and be brought to the center of the earth, to the presence of God, and to the rock that's higher than him from the seas the tumult of being under God's wrath 
we're the psalmist and we die. You know that place? There's something here that I've been trying myself to be impressed by in the best sense of the word impressed, going through the word, bringing it to you and bringing it first to myself, praying that God would bring it to me. We need to be moved by this. In that location, that end of the earth, we need to identify it. And that being overwhelmed, not just with work and everything else, but with God and the presence of God, we need to understand that. If we would know anything of the gospel of the good news. See, always on the backdrop of the bad news and the darkness and the evil must be seen the good news and the light and the good. We live in this world who come to wit's end, which has come to wit's end, haven't they? The end of their understanding. Some at least realize that. So we have to do things that are radical. We have to get together. Whereas never before have we gotten together, not only Republicans and Democrats and communists and capitalists, but humans need to come together. Need to come together. And together, we can do it. We're at the end of our wits and our understanding. We've, we've operated too often individually and in a sectarian sort of way, and as nationalists instead of internationalists. But the solution is come together. That's what this world is saying. Come together right now. Come together. Just come together. For surely, on the same ship, we shall not be defeated. We shall be able to to solve the problems of world hunger and overpopulation and the heating up of the planet and wars and inequalities, inequities, poverty, all these problems that plague humanity. Now, beloved, that too will be the safe space that this united world will come to and is coming to Mark God's word, it is coming to this. When everyone will be what everyone wants to be and find his significance and hers and theirs, and some people even call themselves they, without God. And the fundamental problem of this is that people don't understand what it is to be at the end of the earth. They understand what it is to be the end of their wits. We just have to come to understand this, that we need each other and smart people. They understand when we've come to the end of our resources and we need to pull them all together or find a better way and a better technology to grow more wheat and somehow and have alternate forms of energy, but they don't understand what it is to be at the end of the earth and under the wrath of God. And overwhelmed by the billows and the waves of the wrath of the holy God who says, I am God and no one else. 
And I'm higher than you. And you must not pretend to be higher than you are, little creature of mine. Or more righteous than you are in all your zeros added together. What do they add up to, children? Zero plus zero plus zero. And a thousand zeros. Try to multiply them together. Same thing. Man plus man is always man. Sinful man plus sinful man is always sinful man. And it's no matter how you put them together, is it? The psalmist saw this, and this is remarkable. The psalmist saw this reality of the end of the earth and being outside of the presence, the favorable presence of God, and being under God's wrath even. But he also knew something of God. And that place, he sees as if one's swimming and drowning in the waves. You get the picture here. He sees a rock. He sees a rock on the very shore on which he's crashed his boat. His ship. He sees a rock. He sees that. This high rock, which he'll call a shelter in a strong tower from the enemy. And he sees that and he's floundering and he utters a prayer. Wrath has not destroyed him. Wrath has made him more a man of faith. And his being empty of his own resources and his own pursuit of pleasure with the Bathsheba and his Ruthless murder of Bathsheba's godly wife, Uriah the Hittite, has led to his repentance and to his crying out to the only resource, the Redeemer. So we see here something that is the Christian truth here, leading here to this prayer, the second point. The psalmist at the end of the earth, at wit's end, yeah, at friend's end, and everyone's left him and forsaking, yes, but there's this problem with God that he's having. He's not sensing the favor of God. That psalmist there knows that there is no end at the end of the earth, even of God. And there will be no end, therefore, of his devotion. In fact, the problem, the condition, the, the situation, whatever it was, is leading him to God and God to him. And there's this coming together on the terms of God, of sinner and Savior, of God and of one needing to be saved from the waves, from falling off the earth, from going to hell. That's where we need to be. Is that where you are? Is that where we are? And we should witness to a neighbor that way. All kinds of ways to witness, but one way is to say, are you at the end of the earth? (laughs) Suppose that would be intriguing. 
You're at the end of the earth. You're at the end of your wits. You lost your job. What's the doctor? What's the doctor? What was he said about your prognosis and that of your your life with cancer now? Point him to the rock. This is what the psalmist was pointed to. This is what happened to him at the end of the earth. And just about to go under, coming up for the third time, whatever. The end of his rope came to the point of crying to God, finding him, praying to him. It's about God, higher than him. We recognize that, beloved. We're here, and I hope you've gotten smaller, as we've heard, and I hope that I've gotten smaller. I know, children, we want you to grow up, but not too fast, please. But in a way, growing up is getting smaller. And God, more big to you. God never changes, not God never grows up. He's always God. We need to grow down, grow smaller, and here's this God. And here's this God who's described himself as a rock. Lead me to yourself is really what he's saying. Lead me to the rock that's higher than I. Switch the metaphor to the end of the earth thing. This God is... This wonderful God revealed in the tabernacle who's higher than he is. He's God. And it's not about inches and, and meters and, 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 and kilometers and miles and higher than Everest even. God is higher than the psalmist in this qualitative sense of the word that defies our measurements. And our comparisons, even though the Bible is full of comparisons between God and, and things that he has created. He's like a rock. He's like a mother hen. He's like a father. He is the original father and so on. The reality is there's nothing that compares, no one that compares. God is higher. The rock, therefore, the refuge of God is higher than anything that earth can afford. He's not a man. He's not men. He's not a society of men, though he be a society in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. True religion comes to grip with, acknowledges this truth of God. He's higher, higher than we are. How we need this preached? This is true theology. Not first a God who's our friend, even certainly not a God who's simply our buddy who comes alongside of us. Do we need to hear preached? But he's God. He's higher than we are. And the psalmist is full of God at this point. Has to be. He's not asking for a rope or for a a lifeline. He's not asking for another boat to jump into. He's praying to God, lead me to the rock that's higher than I and 
And I'm thinking of the tabernacle rock. I'm thinking of you, O God, who are high, and you, O God, who at the same time, you love me to come near to me. So the leading to the rock has to do with this God discovering himself to the psalmist and coming to be with the psalmist even though he's higher than him. This is called the gospel. This is God saying, I'm with you, I'm high above you, but I'm with you. And I show that in the tabernacle, and I show that in being a rock to you, and I show that in Jesus. Understand? God has come in Jesus to be with us. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, John 1, 14. Tabernacled, this is the promise here of Jesus. The psalmist is a man of faith, and faith joins him to God revealed in Jesus. Old Testament in promises and pictures and prophecies and New Testament fully revealed incarnate, God with us, Emmanuel. Oh, what a great God and rock in the weary land and a refuge for all who are oppressed Trust in him above man and above self and above all that man can provide. All oases, safe spaces and policies and all the money the government can throw at a problem. God in Jesus, the forgiver of our sins. That's why there's hope in the psalmist. Is Jesus on the mind. He has the rock that's higher than himself, the refuge, Psalm 46, present help in time of trouble, though the mountains be removed and and everything else assaulting. This is an impregnable rock and a fortress from every enemy and any, any sin. And there's this blood you see. This is what Jesus is all about. His blood shed for sinners that covers every sin. And though you need to pray from the end of the earth again and again because you've withdrawn from God and you've sensed that he's withdrawn from you and there is this this anger of the Father upon you, nevertheless, we've been given a prayer, lead me to the rock higher than I am even in our messes. And when we need forgiveness, he's given us the prayer. You pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So it's about Jesus. And it's about this great God who's higher than us. And Jesus, of course, who is the great one who's come down and who is revealed as exalted into heaven. Hebrews 7, 26 We have such a high priest was fitting for us who's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. We have him higher than the heavens. God blesses us through him. 
But notice here, beloved, also how this prayer, so full of faith and of God, is full of faith and confidence that God will not only be a rock to him, but lead him to the rock. Lead me to the rock or set me on a rock that's higher than I. This is so important for our theology. And while we're here, we we learn of God and his truth called theology. Some people may believe in the rock and preach the rock, who is Jesus. Praise God, just so long Jesus is preached. But we also need to pray that God would lead us to the rock. It's not the case, you see, that Christianity is this religion where God offers a rock to us, and now we've got to climb up to it. He says, come climb to me or forget it. Come fly with me, whatever. Let me be your co-pilot. Exercise your will and you can get there on your own. Willpower. And though you're at the end of your wit's end, don't you realize there's a resource in you called your, the power of your choice? Oh, beloved, this was the whole Arminian debate at the time of Dort. Is it the free grace of God or the free will of man? Well, the free grace of God says God is our rock and we need to be led there. God is the rock not only who is God above and God with us, but he has to lead us to be with him. And we cannot lead ourselves. You see, if there is no power in man, there is power in God. If the stairs to the refuge, you rode away, there's no way we get to the refuge. If our will is gone, we need God to lead us to the rock. And this is what the psalmist is saying here, intuitively, as it were. He doesn't have the doctrines of Dort in his gut. Well, no, in his mind and in his creed, but he knows in his gut, in his heart. You see, it's a heart problem. It needs... uh, Wonderful God, to solve a heart problem, my heart is overwhelmed. So he needs the sovereignty of God and his grace in Jesus. And he prays as well, and this is for our edification about prayer. His prayer is a prayer to be led to the rock higher than I. And and then he rehearses to himself what God has been to him. Verse 3, you've been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. His confidence is derived from what God has been in the past. And knowing that God never changes and God is always faithful, he will be God also now in this present difficulty, this great distress. And he says that again in verse 2. You've heard, you, O God, have heard my vows. You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. The heritage is life eternal Of all the God-fearers, you do that. And besides, it's not only his past experience, but his promise. That is, his confidence in the promise of God. That's brought out in verse 6 and 7. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. Well, no doubt David is referring to the, the promise that God gave him in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, you rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
What David is doing here is, is biblical. He's relying on the, his past experience with God, not only, but the promises of God. He knows something of the word. The word is sure. It will be complete and finished and, and fulfilled. And God has said, David, you're going to have a throne forever. You're not going to fall off the planet. You're not going to go to hell. And besides that, you're going to be represented in the kings that are after you. You're one. And there's this seed of the woman that's come, and that will be from your loins. And this can only be said, you see, of Jesus himself. In Jesus, the throne of David abides forever. So we're back where David started from, and that's God with us in Jesus. Speaks of that as well, and of the fact that God's promise will be realized in help, saving help known. When his last prayer of this prayer is uttered in verse 7, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him, the king. You know what that's about, don't you, beloved? A beautiful duo of the virtues of God, mercy and truth. Prepare them both, the psalmist says, like Psalm 85. Mercy and truth are met together. Prepare mercy and justice to be reconciled before my eyes and on this earth and for sinners. Prepare a cross where there must be a showdown, as it were, between God and the enemy, the devil. And God will be God and His justice will be satisfied in Jesus taking my place, fulfilling all the requirements of the law I could not fulfill, and falling off the earth for me. Just about. Or is it true? Completely and entirely. Jesus utters, after all, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember in seminary, wrestling with that concept and it's expressed in Psalm 89, God has broken his covenant with me and so on. I said to the professor, that can't be. Jesus wasn't really forsaken, was he? He didn't fall off the planet, did he? God didn't go that far, did he? And the professor wisely said, Yes, he did. Or something like, just wait, you'll understand. Actually, I don't know how wise it was because I still haven't understood it. It's still not there, beloved. You have a minister who doesn't understand that one fundamental love, the gospel, God with us, and God with us forsaken for our sake. God killing off God in the Son. And that's justice, strict justice and mercy. And at the same time, God being well pleased with his son. That's why we can pray. Now you pray, beloved. But let, let us pray together. The ends, not only of our wits, but understanding our need for forgiveness exposed in ourselves to the wrath of God. And that will lead to praise That will lead to praise. I will sing praises to your name forever. So, because I'm so confident, 
even though at the end of the earth and far from the house of God and far from sensing your favor and overwhelmed and crushed and among a society of people who aren't getting it right, and I know I haven't gotten it right, even though that's the case, so I know and am confident about the great blessing you'll give me of answered prayer, being brought back into the fellowship of God, and of praise. That's a blessing. So I will sing praise to your name forever. It's going to go on and on. I'm going to sing praise. I'm going to celebrate your great godness, love and mercy and holiness and goodness to me. And I'm not going to complain anymore about the the long and winding road, which is my pilgrimage, and all of the things that I thought were right, and you said, no, they're not right, and all the doors that I thought were open, and you said, no, it's shut, or I thought were shut, and you said, no, it's open. You come to praise. Yes, come to praise. So I will sing praise to your name forever. And you know how long forever is? Well, in a way, it's not without any days, but in another way, it's day by day. In fact, if you're thinking of forever and you're not thinking of days, you don't have it right. Look at the psalmist. I'll sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. Forever is for today. Yes, today, today, find your refuge in God. Today, Serve God and choose you this day whom you shall serve today that it may be forever and forever that it may be today that you don't just live, you serve and you daily perform your vows. There's the sanctified response. God answers prayer and we're holy. We're not the same. Today have you been praying? And I've been praying in this house of God. Today, have we been thrown together or has God sovereignly led us, whatever season of life, young people, young adults, single people, married people, elderly, getting old, achy, cranky. We believe the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and that end of the world, which for us has become the beginning of service and praise. Have praise in your hearts. People of God, no safe space for us, but a sure and saved space in which we can praise God. Amen. Thanks, Lord, for the wonderful truth as it is in Jesus. How we need your mercy and truth repaired and given to him. And Lord, how we need that we have your mercy and truth shown to us, your free grace and forgiveness and holiness. We love to praise you. God, we pray, lead us wherever we are in this earth, in this sea of humanity, to you, the rock who's higher than we are, the refuge sure, and to your tabernacle, so amazingly incomprehensible, but known. God with us in the Son. For his sake, we will praise you forever and daily perform our vows. Amen.